0: Great, well uh, last week Ian was speaking to us from a different parable and he said when you're preaching you should have one big idea. So I thought I would ask you from hearing what Andrew read to us what is the big idea of this parable and the passage that Andrew read? Any ideas? I'll open it up to the floor. If not, I will tell you. Somebody give me an idea. What was the passage all about? Prayer. Very good, Angela. Well done. You could have a gold star if I had any. So, you're right. This passage is about prayer. And, um, and I've read this, this parable, I don't know how many times this week, and I think only on Friday did I get into my head the kind of way that you kind of read the story and make a bit more sense of it. Because I really struggled with, with the line where it says... Um, it's moved... Um, and it says, and I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend. It took me ages to work out how that line works. Um, but, it's, but he's saying, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he's his friend, yet because of the man's boldness. He will get up and give him as much as he needs. He's saying, it's not because he's his friend he's done it, it's because he's hammering on the door for ages. So anyway, it took me ages to get that, so that's fine. We're there now. So this is a parable all about prayer and somebody asked me in the week how I was getting on with it and how things were going and I said I've got about three hours worth of stuff and then I realised that was a bit too much even for here on a Sunday afternoon so I've really had to, to cut it down and got back to um, yeah, hopefully the core stuff in this parable but prayer I thought is a really important place to start because I thought prayer, how, well, how is prayer even possible? because if we sometimes say that prayer is talking to God and that's right. But imagine you're at home or you're with your family or something like that and you've, you know, you've annoyed one of them. I don't know if this is common in your, your family or your house. It um, can be, depending on the family. If you've annoyed one of them or if you've upset one of them or you're upset by one of them, you don't really have the kind of desire often to talk to them, dear. You? you think, they've annoyed me. I'm not going to talk to them for a bit. I'm just going to keep them at arm's length, leave them out of the way, just for a short while, or for a long while if they've really upset me. And there are some families that you know, don't even talk for years and years because something has happened that has really upset them. Well, I think there are a couple of parts to this that, that play into this idea of prayer. The first one is, the Bible talks about us all being sinful. It says that we're all people who have done things wrong, and sometimes theologians describe this in a quite unpleasant way almost. They say that we're, as human beings, we're totally depraved which is not a very nice thing to come along and say to someone if you, know, if you went up to somebody in the street and said do you realise that God says you're totally depraved and they said well that doesn't actually say that in the Bible theologians came up with that term later on you'd be stumped because that's true and um, then you'd have to work out where you were going from there but theologians describe us as being totally depraved which doesn't mean we're as, you know, we're as bad as we absolutely could be it just means that every single part of our life is tainted by sin so even when we do good things, sometimes there's a bit of a kind of pride motive or there's something in there that helps us to kind of feel a bit better about ourselves. So we don't just do good things because they're good in themselves and they're costly to us. Sometimes there's a bit of sin that creeps in and it lets us do those things because it will kind of encourage us or, or build us up in some way. But the main issue is that because every part of our lives have got some aspect of sin in them and they're tainted by sin and we're sinful people, Sin is what separates us from God. So if you're upset with your, your brother or your parent or some generic family member and you don't really want to talk to them because you're upset, because they've done something like, you know, say your brother, they've called you a silly name or, or your parents have said you've got to go to bed or something like that. You don't really want to talk to them. But imagine if what you've done is something much, much worse. If it's something that, you know, without the person who you've wronged, making a massive effort, there's no way the relationship's going to come back together. But ultimately, prayer, we, we're in that, that place with prayer. For us to be able to pray, we've upset God and angered God so much by the fact that we sin and we do things wrong that there's no way that we should be able to pray. Ultimately, as human beings, there's nothing that we can do that should allow us really to pray. So prayer is a gospel activity. And in that, I mean, prayer is only enabled by the truth of the gospel. And when we understand the gospel as not just being the kind of, isn't it nice that Jesus takes away our sin? But it is nice. But when we see that all of my sin, all of our sin, is taken on Jesus at the cross, that Jesus deals with it, and then because of that, He rises again, is He proves that our sin is dealt with? God is happy with His His sacrifice. Then Jesus rises and ascends into heaven. And Jesus stood before God. And that means that we can offer our prayers to God through Jesus. There's no way that we should be able to pray because we're sinful people. But because our sin is paid for in Christ, Jesus stands before God and he says, here are the prayers of my people. And Jesus offers our prayers to God for us. And that is only possible because of the gospel. So prayer is a gospel activity. If you want to talk to your family members who are upset, somehow you have to be reconciled with them. Somebody has to say sorry um, and then you can talk and hopefully your relationship gets back on track. With Jesus, we have to ask for our sins to be forgiven and he'll forgive our sins and then we can talk to God because our sins are dealt with, they're no more. The Bible says they're separated as far as the east is from the west, it's just an immeasurable amount and because of that, when we come to God in prayer, he looks at us and he hears us and he's got nothing a pin on us that angers him. All of our sin, all the sin that we have done, all the sin that we, we do do on a, a daily basis and all the sin that we will do in the future is dealt with in Jesus. So prayer is a gospel activity. It involves a cross and because of that we can really talk to God. Okay. So what I'll do is I'll read you this parable once again. I'll just read you the parable bit and then we'll have a bit of a look at the context that Jesus is speaking in to So talking about prayer, he then said to them, suppose one of you has a friend. Now I don't know if the disciples were not very well liked, but he's saying, suppose one of you has a friend. Um, They may have had friends, They, they may not, they probably had each other, so suppose one of you has a friend. And he goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me, the door's already locked and the children are in bed. And I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So that's the parable we're looking at today. It's a really odd parable. Um, And the first thing to say is... That when we look at this parable, we've got to be careful to to not make the wrong conclusion. And the wrong conclusion would be that in this parable, God is a grumpy neighbour. That you can get what you want by just berating him with requests and hammering on the door repeatedly. That's not the conclusion Jesus is giving. Um, And we know that because a bit later on, he says, "For everyone, uh, Wait, that's not the bit I'm thinking. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? And he says, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So sometimes with a parable it lays the truth alongside, so it means what's happening in the parable is the same about God, but God's much better. Or sometimes they're kind of cross purposes. So this is saying, I mean, even you who are evil and, and sinful and do lots of things wrong, even if you'll do something kind how much more will God who's perfect do something kind? So sometimes parables are laid alongside and sometimes they're compared by opposites. So when Jesus spoke this parable, he spoke it into a certain time to a certain people in a certain place. And the first thing to realise is, when it says, suppose a friend comes to you at midnight, first thing to remember is they didn't have electricity. Okay, so back then, they were kind of sun people in a way. They didn't worship the sun, but when the sun came up, they would get up. When the sun went down, they would go to bed. And that makes sense because there was no electricity. They could just turn on the light. So it would have been dark at midnight. And midnight would have been like the coldest, um, darkest time of the day. Secondly, apparently some of these little towns and villages, they were quite seedy places at night. They weren't necessarily the safest place to stay. But there weren't any big hotels. There were no chains of hotels like no Premier Inn with Lenny Henry advertising them on the telly or anything like that back then. So they, there wasn't really any hotels. There may have been an inn in a larger town, but that's not always wasn't always the case. So if you were travelling somewhere, you would have to find a friend of yours who, who lived there who could put you up. If not, you could find a family friend who would put you up, or you could find a friend of a friend who might put you up, or the friend of a family friend who would put you up. And this could go on and go on until you could get the friend of a friend of a friend of a family friend whose friend your mother once met, you know you could get really long chains and you could stay with that person because, you know, communities were quite big. People knew each other a long way back. So you'd find some friend uh, somehow to stay with at night. And in, in the east, and it is still really today, hospitality was a way of life. I mean, if somebody came to your door and you couldn't welcome them in, you couldn't put food on the table, that would bring shame on you. But actually, it wouldn't just bring shame on you. I was amazed to find this out this week that if somebody came to your house and knocked on your door during the week, during the week to stay over, and they said, can I stay over? I'm um, a friend of a friend of a friend of your mother whose cousin once bumped into their great aunt. You know? And you'd say, oh yeah, come in, but I haven't got any food. If you couldn't provide them with a meal and couldn't like, provide for them adequately, you would bring shame not only on yourself, not only on your family or your house, but you could bring shame on the entire village. So the knocking next door isn't just about protecting his own shame, it's protecting the shame uh, protecting the honour, sorry, of the entire village. So it was a shame and honour culture that this is written into. Uh, the next thing, now this amazed me as well. When they speak of houses in the New Testament, they weren't houses like we have today at all. There wasn't kind of, you wouldn't go in and there'd be a, maybe a, a kitchen diner with a living room off to the side with a nice fireplace and, and upstairs there's five bedrooms and a place for you to put your bikes outside and, and a nice little garden with a rockery. You would have one room in your house and it would be divided into two. So the room wouldn't be massive and it was split into two but it didn't have a wall. It would have a raised kind of bed area just a kind of wooden uh, raised section of the house. The rest of the floor was it was just earth that was squashed down and they put reeds on top of it. That was basically your carpet. So you'd have this. This would be your house where you and your family lived and the likelihood is that Know, they said any kind of honourable man back then would have had a few children at least. So families sort would of have been a reasonable size. In a tiny house, they all sleep together on this raised bit, and on the raised bit was also the, um, the stove, the, the hearth, the, the bit where they would, keep the, they would keep the house warm, they would cook on it, so they would all sleep on the bedroom, come kitchen, come heating system, um, come dining area, all these sorts of things. They would lay their mats out and they would sleep on there together. They'd all pile in at night to keep warm because it's cold at night. Not only that, they had one door and one window in these houses, so that's it. But when they, when they would get into bed at night, the deal would be that you wouldn't just get in with your family and all get into bed. Before then, you'd probably roll out all your mats on your, your, your kitchen boiler room bed and you'd put the family in it. And then just before you lock the door... You'd go and you'd get your sheep and your goats and your chickens from outside. It's not safe to leave those out at night. You don't know what's going to get them. So you'd pull them in. You'd leave them on the, rest of the, on the rest of the house. And then you'd lock the door, however they locked it. They may have had one of those lifty handles and a key, but it's unlikely. And then they'd get into bed as well. And then they'd try and go to sleep. It sounds like a nightmare, doesn't it? And the last thing that really doesn't help them in this situation is they don't have any mobile phones, so the person on a visit... You can't text them saying I'm 20 minutes away, just put some chicken on. No, there's none of that at all. So this is what Jesus is writing to. He's writing to people who live like this day in and day out. So remember, God isn't the grumpy neighbor. Great. So in this parable, he gives the word boldness. So this guy who arrives, he starts knocking on the door. Where is it? It says, And I tell you, I will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. When I look through, all the commentators are saying, boldness isn't the the most direct, the the most obvious uh, word that translates here. The word is shameless or shamelessness. So he's not saying, because he was just bold and was willing to get out at night and knock on the door. He's just basically saying he just hammered on the door until he got what he wanted. He just didn't care what people thought. He was just going to hammer on this door until the man got up and sorted out the problem. There was no kind of bargaining involved. You can imagine him knocking on the door and being like, if you give me three loaves of bread now, tomorrow, I'll take the sheep out for you, or I'll... I'll pluck the chickens or I'll I'll take the kids off your hands and lock them in my room for a while and, and you can come and have them later, have a bit of peace. There was none of that. He just rattles on the door until he gets what he wanted. But if you can imagine the situation at the time, if you imagine you're in this house, there's you and your wife and a few kids all tucked up in bed, the goats are on the floor, the chickens are on the floor, the sheep are on the floor. And you just kind of settle down, about to go to sleep, and there's a knock at the door. And you think, oh, I don't want this. Whatever it is, I don't want it. Better not be double glazing. There's a knock on the door. And he goes up, and it's like, what? It's like, Can I have three loaves of bread? Somebody's come round a, off a journey and need to give him some food. It's like, shut up. The kids are asleep. The goats are asleep. The chickens are asleep. Clear off. Thinking, you he thinks, that's it. Can I have some bread? It's like, this better be a joke. And so he just keeps knocking on the door. Knocking, and he says, look, the kids are asleep. The wife's asleep, asleep. Animals are asleep. Clear off. And he knocks on the door again. And he says, look, if you keep doing this, they're all going to be woken up. So as he knocks on the door again, you know, the goat wakes up. The chickens wake up. They start like, cock a doodle doing thinking it's morning because they've been woken up. And now the kids are awake. They're kicking each other because they're boys. And your wife's woken up like, in a strange stupor she has got a rollers in. And she doesn't want to be seen by the neighbor. He thinks, look, if you don't clear off, everything, everybody's going to be awake here. And he looks around and it's all chaos. He thinks, oh, fine, fine. Come on in. And he opens the door, lets him in. He gives him three loaves of bread, which you might think was quite a lot, but they're probably quite small. And he clears them off. And then he's got the job of putting everybody back to sleep. Now, I can't imagine what that must be like. I'm sure it must be like that in the Joneses' house all the time. trying to get everyone back to sleep and the dog? It must be a nightmare. Can you imagine what it must have been like? In one room... Chickens, goats, sheep, children, wife, everything. It must have been an absolute nightmare. But the guy at the door, we don't even read that he says thank you. We don't even read that he offers to do anything nice for him, but he just keeps on asking and asking. Now, like I said, it's important to remember that God isn't the grumpy neighbour, the one who's saying no, clear off. That is not what Jesus is saying with this parable. It sounds a bit like it, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Because for us as Christians, God doesn't act like a grumpy neighbour. He doesn't say, if you come to me, I'm going to keep turning you away and turning you away and turning you away until I'm just sick of hearing your voice and then I will consider what you're saying. That's not how uh, God relates to us as Christians. Because as Christians, as we started off with, the gospel means that there's no way that God has anything to be grumpy about between us and him. All our sins are dealt with, we're perfect in his sight. When God looks at us, he sees the perfectness and the righteousness of Jesus. And not only that, at the beginning of this passage uh, that Luke gives, it starts off with one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Then he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. When Jesus tells his disciples to pray that prayer, he doesn't say, "Say to God, please, grumpy neighbour in the sky, hear." He says, "Go to him and say, Father." Now that's just amazing, isn't it? That because of the gospel, we're not only no longer strangers and aliens from God we're brought into his family as his children alongside Jesus we come in as people who can talk to God as our father and I don't know about you but I think all good fathers delight to give good gifts to their children they want to to treat them well and they want to, to kind of nurture them and bring them up well and God is a perfect father who wants to give good gifts to his children so when we come to him and say father please will you God hears those prayers as a cry of a small child that says, Look, daddy just come and help me, I really want you to, to help me to learn this or to do this and please come and help me. So we don't come to a grumpy neighbour, we come to a father who loves us. And the last thing before I move on from this is when we come to God we don't need to kind of put on any face. Like the neighbour when he came to the door, he knew what he wanted and he asked for it. There was no kind of Now my splendid friend that lives next door to me, and you've lived next door to me now for a good number of years, and we've always had a splendid relationship. And do you remember that time three years ago when I lent you the keys to my car, which I don't have, but will pretend that I do, and I gave you all this stuff, and uh, please can I have three loaves of bread? There's none of that. He just says, can I have three loaves of bread? God says, when you come to me, pray just simple, straightforward prayers. I just want to know what is on your heart. Pray shamelessly. I think is partly what Jesus wants us to learn. And then he says this bit after he gives the parable. So I say to you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Well ultimately in the parable, those things work out. He asks for it, and knows what he needs, he asks for it, he goes and he, and he seeks for it by finding his neighbour and he repeatedly knocks on the door until he gets what he wants. And the first thing we'll do with these three words is a very short lesson in grammar. These are what are called present imperatives. Now, if you know what that means, splendid and tremendous. If not, like me, you have to look it up and just make sure. A, I listened to somebody talk about these words and he said these are present imperatives which means they're instructions for you to do and keep doing, basically. They're not things that are about the past, and they're not things that you can do in the future. They're things you can do today, and you must keep on doing them, is what he says. An imperative is like a must. You should, and you must do it. So saying, ask, and keep on asking. Seek, and keep on seeking. And knock, and keep on knocking. The way that these words kind of function. But then I thought, how how does this work? There's a real temptation here to say, you know, if... If this is true, if Jesus says, ask and you will receive, then I'm going to ask. You know, I'm going to ask for everything. I'll have a new, a new car, a big shiny house. I'll have you know, all these amazing things. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I don't think he's saying, ask for you know, whatever it is that you want and I will give it to you if it's something like that. I think he's talking about specific things that are in line with what, what God thinks is best for us in our life. I don't think God necessarily thinks it is best for us to have you know, a, a new Ferrari. I mean, if God chooses to, to give me a new Ferrari because I asked for it in prayer, then hallelujah. But if not, I'll make do with what we've got because we don't need it. It won't make my relationship with God any better. Um, and in fairness, it'll probably just inflate my pride enormously until I came to pay the insurance. Um, so how do these ideas work? Asking and seeking and knocking. The first thing is, but we're not trying to answer our own prayers. I think it can almost come across a bit like that, but I don't think that's what Jesus says. So when we pray, imagine you're praying because you need a new job. That's the idea. Imagine if you haven't got a job and you need a new job and you're sat praying and you're saying, dear God, please, please give me a new job. Please help me find the perfect job where I'll be able to work, I'll be able to earn some money so I can live and also so I can worship you in working because that's something that you've made me to do. God, I pray that you'll help me find a job. And then you sit down on your sofa and you do nothing. Now, I don't think that's a particularly great response. If you just pray that prayer and say, God, please find me a job. And you sit down and somebody comes in and says, have you got a job yet? No, God's not answered my prayer I've prayed for a job and I've not got one. Have you looked in the paper? No. I've prayed though and God will get me a job because I have prayed. Have you... Job centre? No. Asked about? No. I don't think he's going to answer that prayer then because I don't think if if you're asking God to do a miracle for you over here, that he wants you to just sit here and wait for it, I think he wants you to make the journey so you can learn about him, learn about yourself and be amazed by what God does when he answers your prayer. I think if you want a new job, you pray and you ask God to direct you to find a new job, you look and you apply for a job, and then you keep on applying. So you, you look, you, you ask, you seek through the paper, and then you knock and you apply for all these jobs and say, God, please find me the job that you think is right for me. But some people think, I'll just pray for a new job, and if one happens to turn up on my lap, then, then I'll take it. I thought there's maybe a, a clearer example uh, of this which I'm not going to dwell on, but I'll give you it briefly. If you're a, a couple and you decide that you want a new child and you say, God, please give us a new child, you can ask for that prayer. But unless you do something about it, it's not going to happen. There's something that definitely needs to be done if that's going to work. So that's the second example. And the third example that I thought of was, there are people that we know and that we love who don't know Jesus or they did, but they no longer know Jesus. So how do we ask, seek and knock for those people? Well firstly the obvious one is we just pray that God will really open their eyes and he will show himself to them in a new way so they can see the power and the glory and the might of Jesus through the gospel once again. So that's the first thing we ask. And then we seek, we find ways to, to share the love of Jesus with those people. Not necessarily when they say like, what time is it? It's time for you to turn and repent once again. Now, that's not going to really help, but we seek to share the love of Jesus with these people in any way that we can with God's help. And we just keep on asking. However, there's no point in just asking. There's no point in just saying, God, please, please make this person a Christian. Please turn them to Jesus for their sins to be forgiven. And then go on living a life that shows to them that you don't actually care about Jesus. If you live in a, in a sinful way throughout the week and you're praying for this person that you see day in and day out, God, please make them a Christian, wouldn't that be wonderful? Surely you've got to be seeking after God's heart, living as best as we can in his ways and sharing the gospel with these people so that they can see that even we believe it for that to make a difference in their life. If we're asking God to do a miracle for us over here, there's no point in us living over here in a way that is sinful and and alien to God. If we want God to work and do a miracle for us in bringing someone to Jesus, we have to be sharing the gospel, we have to be living out the gospel as well. I think I told you last week um, that recently I've read a book on prayer and it's this one. It's called Too Busy Not to Pray by a chap called Bill Hybels. And it's yeah, it's a really exciting book on prayer. So if you, uh, if you sometimes struggle with prayer, I'd recommend having that a read through and see what you think. There's a story in here that really touched me. I thought, actually, I'll just share that briefly with you. So it's, uh, it's on page 119. And it says, some years ago, we had a baptism service when hundreds of people publicly affirmed their decision to follow Christ. It was incredible. Afterwards, on the stairs, I bumped into a woman who was crying. I couldn't understand how anyone could weep after such a celebration. So I stopped and asked if she was all right. No, she exclaimed. I'm struggling. My mother was baptised today. And that's a problem, I thought. I prayed for her every day for 20 years, the woman said. And then she started crying again. said, you're going to have to help me understand this, I said. I'm crying, the woman replied, because I came so close, so close to giving up on her. I mean, after five years, I said, who needs this? God isn't listening. After 10 years, I said, I'm wasting my breath. After 15 years, I said, this is absurd. After 19 years, I said, I'm just a fool. But even though my faith is weak, I kept on praying. And finally, she gave her life to Christ. And that woman was baptized today. Looking me dead in the eye, she said, I will never doubt the power of prayer again. I thought it was just such an encouraging story that she had struggled to pray prayed for ever and ever. She is like the neighbour in this story who's just kept on knocking and knocking and knocking. And Jesus has answered that prayer and she was baptised. I thought it was just an amazing story. So I'll share with you. And when we ask and seek and knock, the, the point of that really, I think, is for us to be on mission with Jesus. We're not just asking Jesus to do a miracle over there and us not to be involved. We're asking God to do something for us that we can be involved in, that we can see his hand at work because ultimately that is going to benefit us as well as it will God. If someone becomes a Christian, that's amazing. Okay, that just brings so much glory to God but also it encourages our faith. And if we've been someone in the process that's helped them, we can worship God because of that and it's amazing. And I think when we when we pray we're really asking, like it says in um, the Lord's Prayer, we're asking for God's work to be done on earth. We're not asking for our work to be done in heaven. We want to be praying in line with what God wants. So when we ask and we seek and we knock, we're after God's heart for this world. We're not looking for our desires in heaven. Okay. So I've got one last slide for you. And um, I was thinking, how can we kind of apply... This parable. What is the best way of really applying the, the, like the the kernel of this parable, not kernel, but like the the kind of core idea of this parable? I thought there's only really one word that we can use to sum that up. I mean, these, these things are all very nice and good in a story in the Bible that we can read and we can think, oh, that's a really nice story. I would not want to live next door to that man. But there's only one way really to sum this up, and I thought that is pray. Jesus says when you pray pray shameless prayers, pray bold prayers ask, seek and knock. So I thought that is how we're going to uh, try and apply this parable. I've got a couple of um, a couple of things to, uh, to say and then we'll close. Firstly, I, so, I think sometimes people are a bit scared to pray. I think prayer is quite a scary thing at times because we're not quite sure what's going to happen. There are sometimes two reasons that people don't pray. They may not pray because They're worried that God won't answer their prayer. And the other reason they might pray is because they're quite scared that God might answer their prayer. Especially if it's like, Here I am, Lord, send me. You know, what's going to happen if God answers that prayer and you get sent? Whereas some people would rather play, Here I am, Lord, send him. Because that's a lot safer. Um, But, you know, it depends what the prayer is. We might be scared that God might answer it. But the other thing is, if we don't pray, None of these things are going to happen for us. Jesus asks us to pray, to be on mission with him. And if we're not praying, if we're not talking to God in communion with him, then we're, we're not going to know what's going on. The second thing is prayer takes practice. It takes a bit of time to get used to the idea of what it actually is to pray, to sit down and to spend some time really talking to God and listening to him and seeking his heart over an issue. So there's a couple of uh, couple of practical hints that I've picked up that I'm going to share with you before we finish the first one is there's a brilliant prayer given to us in Luke 11, we call it the Lord's Prayer and all the commentators were basically saying well we call it the Lord's Prayer but it should be called the Disciples Prayer because it's a prayer for the disciples Um, because Jesus would not have prayed this prayer himself because it says forgive us our sins and Jesus didn't have any sins to be forgiven, so they all very much wanted to make the point that they thought that Jesus wasn't sinful which he isn't. So there's a great prayer there. And the structure, the structure of that prayer works amazingly. So it starts off by putting God in his rightful place. And then we ask for our daily physical needs. Then it asks for our spiritual needs. And then it asks for spiritual direction for our future. And that's just a great prayer that, the, that um, Jesus gives. So Father, hallowed be your name and your kingdom come. That really puts God in his rightful place. It says that, first of all, God comes first. And he's our Father. We approach him in the right way. And we want his will to happen in this world, because that's the best thing that can happen. Then we ask God to provide for our earthly needs. And then we ask him to forgive us for our sins. And then we ask him to help us as we move forward to not do those things again. And then the last one I've been uh, going to share with you is one I've heard a couple of times and Bill, Hybel, Bill Hybels goes through it in his book and it's four letters that's four and those letters are ACTS, Acts it's a book in the Bible, so you can remember that uh, ACTS and he says when you pray, if you struggle to pray if you find it difficult at times, take these four letters with you and like work on them and if you use them in this order they'll really help so the first one is, I don't know if you've come across this yourself but adoration, that's the first one spend some time adoring God and his Christ there's a guy that's done some lectures for me on different courses I've been on and he said he, was on a, he went and preached on a skiing trip now again if that's what God wants me to do then that's fine um, because he went skiing and was preaching and that sounds amazing but he was preaching and he said he went around and interviewed all the people he was preaching on Philippians he Says, so how much time do you spend in worship uh, every, every, every week and he said, nearly everyone looked terrified. They were from a quite conservative church, and he said, "Oh, I, heard, oh, um, I don't, don't really know, not not very much. It sounds sounds a bit too oh, funny that to me. I, I, I'll read my Bible, and that's that's it. That, that's my worship. I read my Bible." And he said, "These people, they need to spend some time just adoring God and His Christ. Wouldn't that be amazing if they could just spend, you know, 20 minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, five minutes a day?" sitting and just adoring God and his Christ. That would make their understanding of worship so much better. And that's something I've challenged myself with doing recently, is how much time can I spend adoring Jesus for what he's done? So that's the first one. You should spend some time in prayer really adoring Jesus. The second one is C, confession. Now this one, it doesn't, it doesn't just mean Father I'm really sorry, Pre- please forgive me for all my sins when I read through this book that helped me to understand this a little bit more he gave one really helpful tip he says take your sin and name those sins to God and say God please forgive me for my whatever it is, my uh, bad attitude Father forgive me for being somebody who has a bad attitude forgive me for being someone who takes things for granted forgive me for being someone who's self-centred and the reason he says take your sins and name them before God is because by day two or three you're really not going to want to pray that prayer again it just kind of starts to think, oh, I'm a horrible person, but isn't the gospel amazing that Jesus forgives my sin every time, and he will forgive me, isn't it amazing that but, when you're repeatedly praying please God, forgive me for the same sin it really starts to to affect your heart you think, actually, I don't want to pray that prayer tomorrow, because I want to, to be making progress in that area and it's really shocked me, the past couple of weeks, praying things through like this, and thinking, oh please, forgive me for this, but sorry I'm asking again. Isn't that awful? And you, it's, yeah, it's quite a shock to the system really doing that. So that's the second one. So you've got adoration, confession. T is thanksgiving. Spend some time just thanking God for the amazing things that he has done. And if you want somewhere to start, just start with the gospel. Thank God that in Jesus all your sins are dealt with. All your sins have been taken from you. They were put on Christ and on the cross. All of them were dealt with. Not a single one of them was left undone. They've all been taken by Jesus. And then you can go on and thank him for all sorts of other things as well. You can thank him for all the amazing gifts that he gives us in your life. You can thank him that we had a massive cake when we came into church. You can thank him that you know, that we have so much stuff to be thankful for. In itself, you can say, thank you that I have so many things in my life that are wonderful, that I want to thank you for. And then you can go on and name them. Spend some time thanking God for the things that he does for you. So that's adoration, confession, thanksgiving. And the last one was S which is supplication. I think the reason they use supplication is because it makes a nice acronym. It makes act rather than actor, which would be asking for stuff. So supplication or asking. When you pray, if you put asking at the end, you've kind of got everything else right. If you've got God, if you worship God to start with, if you've confessed your sin, if you've said thank you for loads of amazing things that God's given you, and then you come to asking for something, some of the things that you were maybe thinking of asking God for have disappeared because they're not important anymore. You know, they'll maybe have have faded in in the importance that you thought they were. But then you can start asking God for things like God, I pray that you will help me to worship, uh, to to witness to my friends. God, I pray that you'll help me to share the gospel with people in a way that's really effective. God, I pray you'll help me to to sort my life out. God, I pray that you'll help me to do whatever it is. So they're the two uh, helpful ways, I think, that we can take away with us. We can take the Lord's Prayer we can use that as a guide for prayer and the last one is we can use the the acts the adoration, confession, thanksgiving and supplication as we talk to God so that's basically what I've got to say I've been struggling all week of how to finish this because I think the only sensible thing for us to do is to pray because that's what we've been talking about so what I'll do is I'll give us A couple of minutes quiet when we can just pray on our own, and then um, I'll pray, and then we'll finish with a really appropriate song.